Howdy. I'm Kate Cavanaugh, and you're listening to The Groundwork Podcast. This begins an exploration of connectedness, looking at our own nature through the lens of nature. Mind, body, and soil. everyone, and welcome to the Groundwork Podcast. I am your host, Kate Cavanaugh, and I am so excited to bring you today's episode. I want to lay a little groundwork, as it were, for today's episode, because this is an episode of a very different flavor than we normally have around here, and something that I'm excited and a little bit nervous to branch into. I initially got really curious about bridging divides through my work in the food system when at the beginning, really, and over the last 10 years of running Western Daughters, I've had the great privilege to work with farmers and ranchers whose meat we buy and bring into the shop from all across the political spectrum. And initially, that felt a little difficult for me. I would be on these ranches and having some conversations that I would have never had in my daily life. And I grew to really appreciate this aspect of farming and of working in agriculture that had a really unique opportunity to work with farmers and ranchers on a whole spectrum, a whole political spectrum, and to have this common goal of raising good food, food that was good for land, food that was good for bodies. And through that, I got to build a lot of bridges instead of deepening divides. And I think that is when that first became something that mattered to me. Oh, I really enjoy doing this work. I really enjoy talking to a wide variety of people with a lot of different viewpoints and a lot of different beliefs. And, you know, I was one of those kids growing up that could get along with just about any group. And I think that really aided me in being able to kind of hold space in all of these different conversations. And then I moved out into the country. And when I moved out into the country, again, I was put in a situation where we have neighbors of every flavor. And while I'm not here on this podcast to talk politics per se, I do want to talk about how we talk about politics. And, you know, my own my own political beliefs, while irrelevant, tend to be in the sort of camp of political homelessness. I have a lot of a lot of different beliefs. And I, I, I really think that politically we don't exist on a linear spectrum that just like anything else, this is, this is nonlinear. This is not a binary. I think it's important to recognize that. But what I really want to say is that as I've gotten more curious about this idea of how do we build bridges, how do we have conversations across political divides, I've gotten really interested in outlets and people that are fostering conversations that have a lot of viewpoint and idea diversity. And following the work of Africa Brook and of Jonathan Haidt and of 
the gentleman that I'm having on today, whose name is Will Roosh, has really begun to open the way that I'm having conversations in my real life in a way that has been really exciting. And then at the end of last month, at the end of June, I decided that I was going to go to an event in New York City uh, called Minds. And it's about having a diversity of ideas and how do we create a space where we're having civil discourse, where we're looking at how to depolarize and how to have conversations across an ideological and political and the background, socioeconomic background spectrum. And It was really interesting to get to go to this event. I think we're at a point in time where we're fired up about our views. And I think that's great. I love passion and we are angry. And I think that's great too. I think that there's, there are a lot of different places to come from and One thing that I don't want us to lose as we come from passion, as we come from anger, as we come from this desire to change, as we come from this desire to to make this next generation, our children, to give them the best chance at life, all of these beautiful pursuits, I want us to continue to come from curiosity. And when I look at what that means. So this is one of my core value systems. One of my core belief systems is I want to continue to remain curious. And I've really had to cultivate that over the last two years as some of these conversations have become really heated. How do I continue to stay curious about the other side, to stay curious about how I think I know what I know? to stay curious and cognizant that there is so much that I don't know, stay humble in that regard, and to really seek out disconfirmation. So if I have a closely held belief, I really enjoy reading op-eds and books from different sides. And just to be able to get this sort of holistic 360 degree ish, hopefully, right? That's the hope. It's not always what happens. Picture of what's going on in the world. And this isn't a side of myself that I share very readily on social media. Have a little bit of reticence of coming out. You know, I, I wrote a piece after the Roe versus Wade decision, which I think is incredibly complex and nuanced, and I don't want to dive fully into here, that about the importance of exploring both sides of the opinion, that we can't just be screaming at each other across the aisle, that at some point we're going to have to come together and have a conversation and begin to see one another's humanity. And I think that this is just vitally important. I also, you know, I straddle this line in that I'm a former vegetarian that eats basically carnivore diet now. And I think that we're seeing the same dogma happen in dietary communities. And I, again, want to be able to bridge that divide because I think ultimately our intentions are very much the same, that we want healthy bodies, that we want healthy ecosystems, that we want healthy communities. And 
there's just some very different lenses that we're looking through in order to achieve what are very similar goals. And so this has become a passion project of mine, how to have difficult conversations. And there's a ton of resources in the show notes. Uh, Will's YouTube podcast and especially Instagram channels are just a fantastic resource for finding nuance, for learning how to think critically, which is something that I sought out to do, right? And I, I, I'd like to think that my parents raised me to think pretty critically and to think outside of the box. I know that for my eighth grade graduation, I was given a copy of Civil Disobedience and was considered one of the most disruptive students to ever come through there. And so that also means that I think that education is really important and that we cultivate curiosity instead of compliance or conformity, which is something that Will is going to talk about. And I want to continue the cultivation of curiosity, not just within our children, but also within ourselves as adults and to continue to seek information and to just be curious and to ask why. I love to play the why game with myself as an adult where go down that rabbit hole of why this? Well, why that? Well, why that? And I'm always amazed when I play that game with myself, just how much I learn. So today's conversation is an incredibly important one. And when we're talking about laying the groundwork, having civil discourse, having hard conversations, leading with curiosity and instilling critical thought processes in ourselves and our children, I can't think of anything more important. And so if this feels a little bit out of left field, it's not. Plus, it's my podcast and I get to do what I want. That being said, uh, I just want to thank everybody. If this episode resonates with you the way that it resonated with me, I ask that you share it with a friend, share it with a family member, share it on social media. And I'm just going to encourage you really thoroughly to seek out the work of Will Roosh and to just begin to explore what it means to have hard conversations in this way that I am also learning to explore what it means to have hard conversations. So without further ado, the amazing Will Roosh. I actually just wanted to start off and I wanted to tell you, and I, I, I just told you a little bit about this, but of all the people I've had on the show, I think you're the biggest household name. Yeah. My husband and I consistently look to your work as all of these different things are happening in the world. And I think right now we're kind of at a cathexis of a lot of difficult conversations cropping up in the collective. And as we do that, and as my husband and I have tried to frame the way that we think about things, we often drop in on your account to just see how you're framing things and how you're thinking about things. And I'm just so grateful for your work because it's really helped me deepen my ability to think critically and to seek disconfirmation with curiosity and joy. Oh, thank you so much for saying that. It's, I mean, it's, it really is just like my, my like process, you know, like I want to figure it out too. So I had to just so it's like, all right, so this is the process I'm going through. And I did this, you know, I've been teaching for so long, 16, I'm starting my 17th year. 
I do go through the same thing because I don't naturally maybe care about what I'm teaching my students. So I was like, how am I going to care? How am I going to make sense of this? You know, whatever it is, because if I can't make sense of it, how can I teach it to other people? So it's yeah. really just my process. And that's all my aim is, is to get people to think a little bit. You know, I think so many people just live on autopilot. And I think that's really a problem. And we're seeing how that's manifesting in a lot of things in society. Yeah, we actually talk a lot about how autopilot comes on, that we don't really explore our own belief systems or our value systems and how we got to where we got to. That's sort of epistemological view of things. And I think it's it's really important. And I know, you know, one of the reasons that I really came to this work is I had a real gift to work in agriculture for the last decade plus. And food is an issue that brings a lot of different people from a lot of different political and social backgrounds to the table. And at a time when I lived in a pretty ideological bubble, I had this incredible opportunity to be talking to people across all of these different walks of life and political spectrums as we explored how to bring better food. We all had this common goal. How do we get better food to people? How do we build healthier ecosystems, healthier bodies? And I think it really gave me a gift during the time that I was working in it where I didn't get trapped in an echo chamber and these people became so much like my, my family. And it taught me a lot about how to have civil discourse. And I think that your work has deepened my curiosity about how we have civil discourse in what is becoming a deeper and deeper divide. And in that, I want to build bridges. And so I'm curious if we can just open by talking about, I think you're one of the best bridge builders out there, that you are bridging really hard conversations and doing so bravely and doing so through a lot of different lenses that help bring people together despite their differences. Yeah. Again, thank you. I, I just, it seems so simple to me, I guess, is why it's, it's strange that it is so rare, but it seems so simple to me. Like, why would you not want to understand things more deeply? Like I, so that like very simple question then got me into learning like Jonathan Haidt's work and a whole bunch of things about how the human brain works and about our tribal nature and all of that kind of stuff. Like I get it. It's a lot easier just to fall into some ideology because it gives you answers. And I, and I understand that comfort, but you know, I have uh, three kids and our family motto, the Roosh family motto is I can do hard things. And the reason <laughs> is that. it's so good. Cause it's like, cause they're, they're default. It's like, well, this is hard. It's like, I know, but there's a lot of things that are hard and you don't really want an easy life. You don't, you want a life that of like, that's like free from misery or from suffering as much as possible, as much as you can, but you don't want an easy life. You, I think that we're seeing that in so many situations where people who don't have some sort of struggle, even if it's a manufacturer struggle, that your body needs struggle. Your body needs something. That's where the, I think a lot of this anxiety is popping up and a lot of this like hopelessness. And what's the point of living? Cause you, you just, you have like a very catered to life. And I think that that's a real yeah. problem. So I want to just encourage that. And I do it with myself, whether it's my working out or the food that I eat or whatever it is, all that stuff. Cause then instead of falling to an ideological ball, I was like, I'm going to do the harder thing, which is try to understand this person that I think is really, really off or really, really bad. 
I think that resonates for me so much. You know, when we moved out here to farm, one of it was that I wanted to struggle some. And I think that farming exposes, it's too hot. It's too yeah. cold. It's too hard. There's a lot of physical labor involved. And at the same time, all of that struggle is for a purpose, you know, that I, I, I want to grow my own food, that I want to improve on an ecosystem, that I want to connect people back to nature. And I think that that struggle is very much a part of things. And I think our complacency and I don't know, we live in, we live in perpetual summer. And I talk about this a lot on the podcast. We have air conditioning and heating and a refrigerator. And I think that part of that struggle is what makes us human. And I think it's what overcomes some of that tribal nature because we're struggling together. And I think from an anthropological perspective, there's this aspect of struggling to get over these these difficulties that arise to, to jump these hurdles. And in doing that together, it creates this aspect of, of discourse yeah. historically that we have to join maybe even with an out group yeah. and to better connect. Yeah. I love it. I mean, I guess, yeah. I mean, in farming, it's like you learn patience, you learn hard, all the stuff you said, but like, you know, hard work and like patience, like, cause everything's so quick nowadays too. And it's, it's all these things that we are, we're built for like our makeup, you know, is we're writing these 20,000 year old genetics or whatever they are. And then all of a sudden we have instant gratification. Our, our TV is exactly, we watch whatever we want. We listen to whatever we want. We get whatever, like it's not, we're not used to it. Like we're, our bodies and our minds just can't really keep up with that. So it, it no. doesn't know what to do. And I think that's why we're seeing this, this crisis of meaning and it's going through society that you don't see as much in struggling societies. It's really interesting, right? Like how richer societies struggle with this like sense of like nihilism and, and things where the actual like physically struggling societies don't, they have their own problems. You know, am I going to get food today? But they don't have the same problems that we have. And I think that if we're going to sustain as like a society, you know, in in, like the, the whatever civilized, you know, first world countries, like we have to bring in some element of what you're talking about of this like struggle, even if you have to manufacture, like take the stairs, you know, I yeah. think it's just you, you have to, otherwise you're going to feel it down the road. Yeah. And I think you brought up a really beautiful point that we're, I always think of this, we have ancient hardware, right? Mm-hmm. Like our brains were evolved in this, in this struggle, in this hunting and gathering community and your brain, your hardware doesn't know that it's in the 21st century with all of these easy access to food, to boundless information, more information than we have ever even fathomed having access to. And it's struggling to make sense of all of that and make meaning within that context of there's just more out there than I think our brains can handle. And you said something interesting because I think our brains are meaning making machines. I think that their, their goal is to make meaning. And here we are struggling with nihilism and this sort of lack of meaning. And so I'm actually curious where you think that sort of paradoxical aspect of things is coming from. Um, well, I mean, I think that it's so clear. We're looking at like right now, as much as, you know, I love Steven Pinker's work and to see like things are great right now in a lot of like quantifiable ways. You know, when you look at like infant mortality and access to medicine and stuff like that, yeah. you know, starvation and stuff, but, uh, suicide is that like an all time high? I believe drug overdoses are an all time yes. high. You know, these mass shootings are popping up more so than before. Like this 
that's the weird thing that I think you're saying. Like, it's like a weird kind of paradox of we things have kind of never been better and never been worse in these areas. So we should look at what is the common thread of all these areas that it's getting worse. And then how do we combat that? Because we don't want to combat that with going back to the other problems. Cause we want to keep, we're going to try and just advance, right? I mean, we're trying to be yeah. advancing as a society. So we want to keep the good, you know, access to medicine and healthcare and stuff like that best we can make that even better. And we want to, we want to, we have to bring in some level of voluntary struggle. We have to, and I know that we're going to talk about food. Cause I think that's a big part of it too. What we put in our bodies. You know, how our bodies get used and supported is is really, really important. And that's lacking too. I mean, gym class is not required in a lot of schools now. And that's that's ridiculous. It's it's crazy. And then all these kids are medicated. I've been teaching now for a while and like I've watched how many kids get medicated, it's just going up and up and up because they all have anxiety and they all are ADHD and and stuff like that. It's like, yeah, well, they're puppies. Like you can't tell a puppy to just sit still. Like these are these teenage boys. Like you can't just tell them sit down and listen to some boring person talk in front of a whiteboard. Like they're supposed to be out chasing rabbits and stuff. Like this is not, it's not meant it's cruel. So what you do is you drug them and tell them there's something wrong with them, but it's not like they're just put into a system. Like it's like putting a fish on land. It's like, there's nothing wrong with the fish. It's just in the wrong environment. We've been, we, take children out of anything resembling a natural environment mm-hmm. and put them under these LED blue lights yeah. and we sit them in a chair and and they want to be up and moving. Their bodies want to be moving. They're growing and their minds want to be challenged and interacting, I think, with a diverse array of ideas. And so I think that one of the biggest things I wanted to talk to you about was K through 12 education, because I love that this is one of your most passionate spaces that you're coming from, because I think it's so important that we are, you know, in your, your interview with Hollis Robbins, you talked about bootstrapping a better society. Yeah. And I think that starts with how we teach children in this K through 12 environment. And so what do you see as needing to change? So again, this seems like such a common sense thing to me. Maybe it's cause like I was talking to Eric Weinstein, who I think is really awesome and brilliant one time. And he said, I did too. he said, uh, he's like, Will, you're a first principles thinker. He's like, I think a lot of people say they are, but you actually are. I just think, I just think I'm simple, <laughs> but, but like, here's, I guess what my issue with school, we as adults don't learn anything that we don't want to learn. Like if I'm going to go on a, a YouTube rabbit hole, you know, it's going to be like for a reason, like I'm interested if I'm going to look up how to, you know, retile my floor, it's because I need to retile my floor. Right. But school is not that way. They're not teachers. Don't explain to students why they should be learning this. So now you're putting people, if you want to take them out of natural environment, put them under these lights, put them in this room where they have to sit still. And then you're going to teach them things that if they say, teacher, why are we learning this again? And you say to go to college. Why do I need to go to college? So you can make money. Why do I need money? Well, so you can survive. Like it's, it's so like down the road. You know, I said, tell my students, like this is an example. I've told teachers this too, like in public, uh, like professional development is like, you take a group of kids, take a, a regular kid and you are at something, you take them to Starbucks and you say, all right, here's how you make a cappuccino. And they go like, all right, I don't care. I don't need to make a cappuccino, whatever. Okay. But you tell that kid, Hey, 
their parents pull them aside and say, Hey, we're going to lose the house. You know, dad lost his job or whatever. We're going to lose the house. We need you to work at Starbucks. I got you a hookup. If you lose this job though, we lose the house and your baby brother is going to be out on his own or have to go with your aunt and you're going to be away from or something like that. So you really need to keep this job. Now go to Starbucks and they say, all right, let me try to make a cappuccino. You go, Oh, okay. My family's counting on me. I better pay attention to this. Like there's a direct connection. So I'm always doing that when I'm teaching history. It's like, it's not just how you negotiate the North versus the South. It's how do you negotiate with your parents to extend your curfew? You know, how do you negotiate with, you know, the girl that you want to take out on the, on a date to go out with you? Like it's, they have to connect it to something in their lives immediately and down the road. And that's just not done. I think of teachers as translators, Kate. Like I think that we are not here to explain stuff to people because our phones are far better than we are. And the day that I can be replaced by Google is the day that I should be. So Google can explain history, what happened better than I can. But what I can do better than Google is how learning this historical event will help you, Kate, in your life now and in the future. And that is what I think teachers should be across all of K through 12. And you have to change it based on how old the kid is and their, their levels and stuff. But I think that's the biggest change that needs to happen in education. I think that's so important to connect kids to why they should understand yeah. and learn something and to allow them to follow those threads of why I'm a why kid. I, I yeah. spent a lot of time asking, well, why, why, well, why that? And even as an adult, I try to cultivate that sense when I am learning something of just following that rabbit hole of why and helping myself connect to why does this matter? Well, yeah. Let me just say like that. Most kids are, I mean, kids ask a lot of questions, a lot. They ask why all the time. Louis C.K. had a great bit on that where it's like, why, why, why? I don't know if you ever heard that. It's really funny. Uh-uh, and he just, no. he's like, and then it gets really existential. Like it, we can't go. Why? Cause it's raining. Why? Cause clouds. Why? Uh, cause water is collected. Why? Uh, I don't know. Why? Cause I didn't pay attention to school. Why? Cause my parents <laughs> were bad. Why? Cause they had crappy parents. Why? And then he's like, and then it gets really like, cause some things are, and some things are not. Why? Because you can't have nothing. Isn't like whatever. And what happens is kids are like that. Adults generally aren't curious. So what happens? The education system mm-hmm. happens. And what occurs mm-hmm. is a good student is not a curious student. A good student is a compliant student. Think about who is the good student. Who's the A student? The one who does what they're told, listens to the teacher, does everything, turns it in when it's asked. Okay. Listens to the information, takes notes the way they're supposed to, regurgitates it on tests the way that they're supposed to. Compliance is what's built in our school system. It was designed by the Rockefellers. I get it. Like we want to have citizens who obey rules and stuff like that, but it crushes curiosity. When kids ask why, it's like, I can't go over that because we have to stick to the state standards and all that kind of stuff. So we are actually in a system where that punishes curiosity or exchanges it, exchanges imagination and curiosity and all those really important things for compliance. It's a problem. That's a big problem. And I think, I mean, that, that, that's a dark outlook that we really are just sort of catering to compliance instead of cultivating curiosity, which I think is what we should all be cultivating in our children and in ourselves. Like I want, I want to remain curious. That's one of my core values. And I think that's actually a big driver of how you bridge gaps and how you connect with people that think very differently from you is by cultivating curiosity. 
how do we do that? How do we continue to cultivate curiosity in both children and adults that have been through this system that has dampened their curiosity? Yeah, you just have to wake it up. Like, it's there. Like, people ask rhetorical questions like, how could you possibly support this guy? It's like, don't ask it rhetorically. Actually ask them. Look them in the eyes. Be like, I am confused how you could support them because what my understanding is of this candidate is blah, 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 blah. So, and what am I missing? Like, I must be missing something. I, you must be seeing something that I'm not. What is it? Like, it's in there. You just have to wake it up. And you have to be willing to sacrifice your ego. I love the Ryan Holiday books about philosophy. So he has a great one. Yeah. You know, ego is the enemy. Like, you have to swallow your ego. And I think part of that is connecting your ego or your identity to being curious. Like, I don't think that I'm that smart. I really don't. And I think that that's helped me open it up to like when people say like you're smart, it's like, uh, not really. I'm actually pretty simple. I just am curious. So I don't mind having the wrong answer. I actually embrace it. As you said, seeking disconfirmation. So I'm okay with like being proven wrong because my ego is not connected to having the right ideas. My ego is connected to getting to the right ideas. So being proven wrong fits right with feeding my ego. So it's, it's like a hack. <laughs> it's just a better approach, I think. And that's what I try to promote because I think it's just a better approach. And I've gotten smarter by taking this approach than I did saying I'm right. And then when someone says something that's counter, I just la 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 la. That's not going to serve me at all to get to the best ideas. So you have to crush your ego the way that it, that it, it you're maybe set up now and embrace one. Oh, that's like, that. that's like, Hey, I'm going to try to get to the right answer. So can you help me get to that? Can you help me understand why Trump or Biden or whoever it is, is good by your, and then they might say some nonsense that you disagree with and you go, Oh, okay, well that's the best you got. That's not great. But then you can always seek out better people, better representatives from that side. And that's always valuable too. the best, you know, the steel man arguments, the best arguments for the side with which you disagree. Yeah. And I think one of the biggest things that I think you, you've taught me over the last year and a half of following your work is this idea of seeking out disconfirmation. Mm -hmm. And in a world where we're stuck inside of these echo chambers that we curate, where we watch news that aligns with our beliefs and we follow people on social media that align with mm -hmm. our belief systems and we spend time in real life with only people that align with our belief systems, we're never exposed to other ideas and that this idea of viewpoint diversity that I think is incredibly important, especially within the educational system. But I think that seeking disconfirmation, like, okay, let me, let me look at the other, I have this belief and I want to get curious about the other side of that. And I want to really look at that. And through the past year and a half, I've started to do a lot more of that because of your work. And it's not easy. Right? No. I mean, it, your, your ego takes some hits yeah. and you, you have to open up in a different way and I think that vulnerability and that curiosity are a, a good breeding ground for having better conversation. Yeah. I mean, it's like the scientific method. If you have a hypothesis and like the hard sciences, you don't try and prove it right. Cause you can't, I mean, especially with the internet now and like, and things like that. So you try to prove it wrong, like go try and prove gravity wrong. It's going to be tough. So yeah, I mean, I just, it seems very simple to me. I understand why people don't do it, but it just seems so obviously flawed to protect bad ideas or to shut down, you know, good arguments that go against it and what you think and stuff like that. Cause maybe it feels like, uh, like you don't have a mooring, you don't have like, like any kind of grounded anchor. 
But yeah, so maybe, but then you have to find, you know, your anchors elsewhere, you know, and I think that, you know, maybe that's through like some sort of, you know, religious affiliation or something along those lines, because I understand how it can be very disruptive. That's why people, you know, uh, the, the flip side to like psychedelic drugs and stuff like that is like, it, it does disrupt your, your worldview. And that's really, really tough. You know, it's really, really hard to go through that. But I think it can be really valuable when you're trying to figure out what this world is and how to, you know, get through it properly. You mentioned something my husband and I talk a lot about and that we've become unmoored from some of mm. our, our anchors, yeah. that religion served as an anchor. And I recently read a book by Lisa Miller called The Awakened Brain. Mm. And she's a, she's a PhD at Columbia, and she looks at the place that belief whatever that is, religion, belief, spirituality occupies in the human brain, that we are wired for belief system. Mm -hmm. And I wonder oftentimes in today's world, if we have replaced a religious or a spiritual belief that's rooted in community and togetherness with political belief systems or with identity politics. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Identity is such an interesting thing because I've had this podcast where I talked to all these different people and I found this, this concept and it, it's really interesting to me how you identify really matters. So if you identify, I've had like, you know, a whole bunch of trans people on the podcast and some were like trans activists. So I say, how do you identify They're like as a trans man, activist, you know, whatever it is. Okay. All this kind of stuff. And then I've had other trans people like Corinna Cohn, who says, I identify as a computer programmer and a cat person. And then like way down the list is trans. So like talking about diet, like if you, my wife was vegan for a little bit just because she liked a simple diet. She wasn't like tied to it. So if you said like, well, here's some facts about, you know, the health aspects of vegan diet and it's not so great sometimes, or here's the reality of habitat loss and small animal killing and stuff like that. She went, huh? Okay. Well, yeah, I guess that's not so great. But if your name is like vegan girl 35 and you have (laughs) vegan stuff everywhere and you bring that stuff up, then you have the psychological backfire effect and you go, ah, no, that can't be true because that's who I am. And your brain looks at it like you're being attacked. So yeah, I mean, if you get rid of, if there is this container inside of us for, for meaning or our belief in a higher power, I should say, and you abandon the traditional outlets for that, like religious belief or something like that, it's fine, but be careful what you replace it with. Cause to say, you're not going to replace it with anything. I, you might be fooling yourself. You have to be a very, perhaps like a very scientific brain person. You have to be okay with having no mooring. Someone like a Peter Bogosian or, or someone like that, maybe Sam Harris, you know, these like really hardcore atheists, maybe they're okay with just like never getting answers, not really knowing, you know, what, ought. you know, you can get an is from science, but not really an ought. So not really knowing, you know, the best way to live or understanding morality deeply. And they're okay with that. But if you're not, and you're going to try and understand like morality without that, like the traditional ways of understanding it through like religious texts, what is it going to be? And I think that's exactly what we're seeing with like, what do we know to be bad racism? Okay. So anti-racism is good. Yes. Like good, like unquestionable good, which is why John McCorder talks about how it's like a religion. Cause it's unquestionable good. The same way that some people might say Christianity is unquestionable good. I would disagree that's unquestionable, but like, like that concept, I think is what's, I think that's exactly what's happening. I think people are trying to fill up that container with whatever is, is just available around us. And it's, it doesn't hold up. I mean, these religious, if you're talking about Judeo-Christian belief, like thousands of years of people trying to crush it and it's still standing, maybe that's valuable, more valuable than some of like 
whether it's like MAGA stuff on the right or woke stuff on the left or whatever it is that is so new. You know, it's not going to hold up to scrutiny. And I think that's why even like people on the right, you know, like people like Charlie Kirk and stuff, they don't want to interact with good faith, strong arguments against them because it's kind of like they're like they're filling those channels of religious belief. And definitely the woke people, they don't talk to me very much at all because I think it's so disruptive. Yeah. I mean, I think John McHorter's work, I love seeing his work in contrast with everybody's work. And I think you touched on something really important, which is this idea of putting things under this good and bad, because we're looking for that moral Mm -hmm. anchor. And so all of these, all of these ideas are kind of crafted around this good, bad binary that number one doesn't really have any nuance in it. And number two creates this polarization where it's hard to have a conversation because if what you believe is the good, then everything else is morally reprehensible. And I think Bagashian talks about that in how to have impossible conversations in a way that, that that great book. And I think that that makes it even more hard to have a conversation because you're trying to get over this. Well, if, if your held belief is the good belief, then intrinsically everything else is bad. And that's, that's a pretty hard footing to start on to begin to bridge some of these really big divides that we're seeing. Well, and that's why in a lot of like religious belief, I mean, I just, I know Christianity more than anything and like more than like others, but you know, there's like forgiveness is a big part of that. You know, grace is a big part of that, you know, and that's like these religions have that built into it because somehow thousands of years ago, they understood humans better than a lot of people do even today. I mean, it's fascinating how like, you know, holy water started by like, you know, washing your hands and stuff like that. Before they knew germ theory, they knew about, you know, like washing up <laughs> and stuff like that. It's really fascinating. It really is. It's, it, it's wild stuff. How, how like, closely tied modern science is with some of these like stories and rituals and stuff like that from like, even like the old Testament thousands of years ago. So, you know, you're going to get way too simple in like these explanations and of, you know, whether of what good and bad is if you're just following politics and things, but it works because it's filling people's need clearly from that. I want to check out that book. Like I've heard um, a bunch of people talk about it, that container, like it fills that need for a belief in something bigger than yourself. And it gives you that sense of like, I'm doing the right thing. The same thing that a lot of like those, you know, street corner pastors, you're yelling fire and brimstone for Christianity. They believe that they're doing the right thing. They really do. But they're acting in a way that's very similar to, you know, maybe like a woke activist or something, something like that would. And I think that a big part of this too is developing critical thinking. I know for myself, I came from an atheist background and for me to connect with something bigger than myself has, has taken some purposeful work. And I think it's good work and it's interesting work because I really recognize that void within myself that I want to fill with this or that. How are you doing that? And I mean, I think I took the first thing that felt to me like it was bigger than me and that it connected all these dots. And I've been exploring my sense of spirituality or of God through that, which for me is nature. And as somebody who's been interested in ecosystems for most of my career, I get to see that there's all these beautiful interconnected relationships, that everything is connected and that everything has this it's a part. It's both an autonomous and sovereign part 
And then it's a part of a whole from which emergent properties are going to come from. So the whole is greater than the sum of its parts and everything is connected. There are these beautiful trophic cascades where, I mean, it's like, it's like a grand tapestry where each thread plays a role. And if you pull on that thread, everything else is connected to that. And I think through that, I've seen something that's bigger than me. Yeah. And gotten to explore this concept of God through the lens of nature. Yeah, I feel closest to God in nature as well. And do you ever see the uh, Instagram account, Nature is Metal? Yes, yes. Love this account. It's so wild. Like, it's just crazy stuff. Like a deer eating a bird and stuff. You know, a, a mother bird's like pecking the brains. It's like, it's it's brutal stuff. But it's brutal. That helps you understand, like, why do bad things happen to good people and stuff like that. It's like, well... Yeah. I mean, it's, it's beautiful and brutal. It's, you know, yes. it's, it's, it's the yin yang. It's, and that goes right back to a lot of religious ideas of good and evil too. It's like, there's terrible things. There's terrible suffering in the animal kingdom. You know, I'm a hunter and people are like, oh, that's terrible. So it's like, I- how, how do you think that like an elk dies in the wild or a white-tailed deer dies in the wild? Like not in a warm bed surrounded by loved ones. It's starving. It's being ripped butthole yes. first by wolves. Like this is not good. And a, a bullet or an arrow is way more humane, but people again have this ignorant idea about what it is, you know, but it is brutal and it's beautiful and we can, and those aren't in conflict for me. They're kind of, you know, they're interconnected in such a, a, a wonderful way of what reality is. I couldn't agree more. And I think that one of the things I get to witness here as a hunter and as a farmer, we raise meat and mostly. I'm in New York, but okay. lived in Colorado for many years. Oh, okay. We raise all of our own meat and I get to see this beautiful cycle of life and death and how death, how this, you know, we can call it darkness, but how it, it fuels more aliveness that we need that yin and yang, that we need that balance. And one of the things I've noticed in doing this work is that death is the point, And this has been a real spiritual anchor for me. Death is the point where one becomes many. Mm. And whether this is a, a fox that dies in the forest and is scavenged by, you know, coyotes and other foxes, whatever it is, and then its bones begin to decompose and that feeds the microbes in the soil. And that then in turn feeds the, the plant life in that area and helps those plants mineralize, which then feed the deer. That, that death is this point where one becomes many, but it's also, you know, I've, I've worked as a butcher for the last 10 years and been in some high profile publications and people, death upsets people. Yeah. Right. This is part of like that polarization piece that I think that you put so beautifully that nature is really brutal and there's a space for that. Yeah, that, um, the death is, you know, it triggers the disgust element of our, of our moral foundations. Hmm. So anything that's disgusting, we shield it from our view. So you go to the bathroom and it's kind of, it's in like a separate room and it goes down, it flushes away. And I don't know where it goes, but it goes somewhere and someone deals with it. And my garbage, same thing. I put it in the can, I put it out the curb and then it just goes away. And my food just, you know, I had students say to me with complete sincerity, Mr. Why are you going hunting? Why don't you just go to the store and buy your meat? So an animal doesn't have to die. Like, and, and these are like high school students. Oh yeah. Oh like, yeah. I've seen there's, this. A, there's no connection to reality in that. And they, they don't see death. They've never seen a dead body. Maybe like their, you know, 95 year old grandma, you know, something like that. But 
And then there's, you know, kids who are, you know, from like the hood when I taught in, in East LA that, you know, saw death and it was a very kind of unnatural, brutal, you know, gunshot kind of stuff, you know, that kind of stuff. But they're, they're very removed from that. And then even what happens in those neighborhoods is largely like removed from like a lot of society, you know, like when I was teaching like, like a really tough area of East LA, you know, my students would get shot. They would get killed. They would all that kind of stuff. It didn't even make the newspaper. It wasn't on the news at all. It was just like, ah, that's just life in the hood or something like that. We shield ourselves from what the reality of living is. And that probably mm-hmm. goes back with what we were saying earlier about, about like how life is so good. Cause we don't, we also shield shield us. It is good. Yes. We have air conditioning and stuff and we ignore, we can ignore all the negatives. Yeah, I think that disgust factor that you talked about, that's such a beautiful way of putting it. And I think that we've done that with death. We've turned death into something that's, you know, we we put it away in hospice and in hospitals. We hide our elderly away instead of incorporating them into our life. And I think that that has made us, especially looking at through the lens of the sort of dogmatic arguments on meat eating and veganism and these sort of in-groups and out-groups and the meat eating community or not that we have to re-embrace death and i think take ownership of death and ownership of grief as well that when we see what is happening right in this high school in east la like there's so much grief and i think there's a desire to turn away from that because we don't know how to hold grief and maybe we've lost the container for coping with our own deep grief, whether it's when we kill a deer, when we're hunting it. And I, I mean, I've felt that, that sense of connection and grief, oh, even, so sad. Yeah. yeah, even within that. And I think to feel that, I think it opens a door to something else. I think to let death in, to let grief in. Well, grief is the, it's the counter to love. So it's, it's the, it's the, the bet that you make when you, when you deeply love something, you know, I have three kids and I'm terrified all day, every day that something's going to happen to them because the grief would be so great. The grief is, you know, the more you love and the deeper the grief. And I've been very lucky to experience, you know, very little like of that deep, like people very close to me passing, you know, early and stuff like that. I've been very, very lucky in that. And a lot of people are not as lucky, but yeah, it's so terrible. Maybe the worst part, the worst emotion that human beings can have is that deep grief of losing someone who you love more than yourself. And because it's so scary and it's so terrible, yeah, we we just want to shield ourselves from it. But again, talking about religious beliefs, like I um, teach now, I'm involved with the, the modern Orthodox Jewish community, which is interesting that I ended up working with this community, but they have this thing called sitting Shiva, where when someone dies, you sit for like six days or something like that. Maybe you're like, like, and you just, you don't bathe, you don't cook your own food. You just sit and cry and mourn. It forces you to mourn. Like you have to feel the feelings, you know, and we don't do that. I have a good friend whose brother died um, when he was younger from a, a car accident. And he's like, I never really grieved. I just moved on. Mm-hmm. I just, I couldn't, I, it was too painful. So I just moved on. And that is going to, you know, that's going to show up, you know, yes. that lump under the rug is going to affect you. You're going to trip over that lump and you better deal with that. Cause it's going to manifest in a lot of really ugly ways. And I think that's another, that just falls right in line with, with everything else that we're talking about. 
Yeah. And I think there's this aspect too, of we have to teach children how to feel grief. We have to model what that is to experience, to allow grief and to feel the complete obliteration of that emotion. Because I do think that it crops up in other unlikely places. And I think it crops up in avoidance too. And I think that there's grief both on a personal level. And I think right now we're seeing a lot of people grieving on a cultural level for ideas that are lost on both sides, right? That things are shifting and changing so much that there is this sense of sort of cultural grief that I think has made everything so tender. And I think it has deepened our reactivity when we're trying to have some of these hard conversations around our closely held beliefs, because there's, there's grief and there's tenderness there as well as this sort of strong belief system that maybe we've put in the container where something else goes. Yeah. Maybe we pivot to another emotion that's not as painful like anger. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that because I think that anger is actually something that usually is what's laying over top of grief. And I I wonder, this wasn't where I expected the conversation to go, but I, I do wonder because I think what I see right now is everybody is so angry and too angry mm-hmm. to even have a conversation. Yeah, I don't. And there's a, there's a lot of reasons to be angry with the world. I get it. There are. There's a lot of ways that you're a victim, that we're all victims. But the reason I, I kind of got like, I guess some traction in what I'm doing is I was pushing back on some of like the, the woke stuff. And I wouldn't consider myself like anti-woke necessarily. It's actually a lot of, I'm a pretty progressive thinker and there's actually tenets of like critical race theory that I agree with and stuff like that. I've defended it like in several different ways, but you can't just tell people that they're victims all the time and then not give them some sort of alternative for how to get out of that victimization. Like telling these kids in East LA that they're victims, they're like, yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> like, like, how do I stop being one and just making all the focus on how things are bad or how you've been wronged and not giving you the tools out, whether that's literacy or whatever it is, that is my, my issue. It's not that critical race theory is being taught. It's that if racism is in all these places that you're, you know, highlighting that it might be, what do you do about that? That is not being taught. And that just is setting up more people to be angry at a, at a situation that they could be balanced about. It's like, oh, if you only looked at nature as metal and you didn't watch a National Geographic, you know, um, what David Attenborough documentary too, then you would think that nature is only terrible. And that's a lot of what's happening right now is you're seeing only yeah. what's terrible on the news, on social media, the right, you know, Ben Shapiro is talking about how crazy things are with the left. And then, you know, whatever the left is saying, how crazy things are with the right, blah, blah, blah. blah. It's just like, there's beautiful elements of all of this. And why were you not highlighting that too? Like that's, that's a frustrating element. I think, and you were the one who really taught me about looking through a lens, right? That critical race Mm. theory is a great lens and we can hold up that lens and we kind of look at, we can look at the world through that lens and maybe we can find some places where we need to do some work. But if we're beholden to that lens, if that's the only lens we hold up and then all of a sudden everything becomes beholden to the way that you're seeing through that lens. And we're not creating opportunity to see things that are working or to find places where we can really build tools that are, are helping to change things. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, um, so you raise your own food. I was going to ask you a question, like, cause factory farming is 
it's something that I'm like, I'm like, I take like strong stances. They're pretty loosely held still, but like something like, like, um, whatever abortion, I'm so mixed up on because it's so complex and I don't know where I stand. I'm probably leaning more on one side than the other, but like, there's a couple that I'm pretty strong about. Uh, psychedelic medicine should be legalized, researched and, uh, and things like that. It's like a strong one, but another one is factory farming is just bad. And that's why I, I hunt and I'm hoping to get to the point where I can get most if not all of my meat from either local farms, mm-hmm. like, you know, basically like see the cows and what the way that they live and stuff like that, or from hunting, because it is fascinating how this just like, there's like gag rules on journalists. I don't probably don't have to tell you, but like there's gag rules on, on journalists. They can't go into these giant, you know, warehouses. They aerosol the feces pools. So there's like these pools of all where all the waste goes and they aerosol it. Where does that go? It goes up into the air and it lands on these low income housing developments causing all kinds of lung issues and stuff like that. These animals are treated cruelly. They're clipping the beaks off with bolt cutters and stuff like, like it's, it is wild. And yet we just all do it. I actually made a video. I don't know if you saw it about comparing it to slavery. I um, haven't seen that. I would be you. really, uh, yeah, and I'll, we'll post a link okay. to that in show notes. Not, not that they're the, like equally as bad. It's not that, but the argument is when we try to take like the, a modern moral lens and apply it to like the 1800s, if you go to the South, they're like, look, there's no other way to do it. We can't sustain without free labor. There's no way we're going to, we're going to all die. This is the, the country's going to collapse and all that kind of stuff. And then we, you know, abolish slavery, thank God. And then all, and then we move forward. We're like, Oh, actually we found a way to do it without slavery. Well, I think factory farming, I think you get the same arguments. We know it's wrong. There's, it, it would be almost impossible to really get all the information on what's happening in factory farms and go, yeah, this is all fine. But we justify it by saying, well, people need to eat and people need to eat. We got to let this kind of bad thing go because otherwise we're not sustainable. There's a very similar argument there. And I think that, um, Interesting. yeah, I think we need That's to figure something out of this factory farm situation is, is really, really ugly. And then, and then on top of that, the hormones and the chemicals that they put into these things that don't even really resemble yes. a chicken anymore and all these steroids and stuff. What is that no. doing to our bodies? I don't know. I'm just, that's like something that I just was, was curious on your thoughts on. I think it's complicated because I think that you have a system that is very obviously wrong, right? That nobody's going to say that factory farming is something that we should be doing. And and while we make arguments for, well, we need to feed people. And that, that is often the argument. I think there's this other side that we have to look at too, which is that the media says that all meat is bad for land, is bad for bodies. You have, you have a 60 year narrative coming from Ansel Keys that animal fat is bad and this proliferation of sugar and seed oils in its place. You have most media outlets really celebrating plant-based meat and vegan agriculture without looking at what those agricultural practices entail and what that might be doing to an environment or to a body, but that being the prevailing like, okay, well, meat is really bad over here. This factory farming, it's bad. And I think most of us can agree on that. But then on the other side, you have all meat is bad. And so we just need to stop eating meat altogether. It's bad for the land. We need to legislate for this. And you see this in Ireland and New Zealand and in places in Europe. Right now, there's a huge protest going on in, I think, Holland. Netherlands, yeah, yeah, yeah. Netherlands, where they're cutting emissions and they're cutting out farming. And then in the middle, you have... 
people that are thinking about regenerative agriculture. How can we do this in a way that makes sense for land and bodies and makes sense within some different contexts? And obviously, right, this is my big bias. And so I, I try to seek out different sides of this because my bias is regenerative agriculture is a really great solution. Yeah. To both of these things. <laughs> well, yeah, but... <laughs> I agree with you, though. So you're not going to get pushback from me. Yeah. But I think that there's a real difficulty there when you have, we don't have a lot of critical conversation happening around plant based meat in the media or around synthetically grown meat. And then we have just this sort of blanket critique of animal agriculture, which, you know, to make a for it argument, it still is comprised of mostly family farms that trickle into that more centralized system. And I think the American farmer is an important benchmark and something that we're rapidly losing along with land that's owned by small individuals. We see this. Yeah, exactly. We see this with Bill Gates. And so I think there's a lot of, and I, I mean, I know this won't shock you, nuance and complexity within this conversation that we really need to be digging deeper into, well, why? And who is this affecting? Yeah, I think scale probably is an issue. Maybe factory, factory meat, factory produced meat, maybe like maybe the reality is if we want to get everyone fed, we can't have free range animals and blah, blah, blah. Like maybe, I don't know what, I mean, I think it's possible. Yeah. I think it's possible, but I think it requires such a massive overhaul of the way that we are accustomed to operating in this world, right? Smaller communities and stuff, less McDonald's. Yeah. Yeah. And it goes back to, you know, smaller people growing fewer things as Mm -hmm. well as some, some bigger scale is important in agriculture. And it's certainly important for margins. And this is a really tough margins business. You know, you're looking at people that operate on one to 2% margins. That's real tight. And so we have to account for that, but we have to change our purchasing habits. We have to change our expectations of meat. When you pasture raise a chicken, it's wildly different than what you buy at the grocery store. Well, that's, I mean, that gets into another thing. And I know, um, Nina Teicholz, you know, talks about a lot about that fat stuff and Ansel Keys stuff, but like our like gut microbiome and things like that. Like when I started, I ate really unhealthy until like my early mid thirties. And then when I started diving into like real food and stuff like that, I was eating fast food every day. And then when you start eating like just like real food, it, your body is, is just like, whoa, this is so bland and this is so gross because your gut microbiome is so used to this like flavor rush. They, they've been thriving on that nonsense. It's hard. And that's why when I when little kids are eating really crappy food, it's like, oh, man, like they don't even have a choice. And then they're not going to just turn 17 and be like, OK, now I'm going to start eating just like fresh fruits and, and lean meats and stuff like that. It's not going to work. Like you can't do that. You can't just all of a sudden shift gears from eating nuggets and fry, you know, um, fire Cheetos and stuff like that. That stuff is just, it's so different. It's not even really food. So the change would be like, well, this stuff does taste good. Like I get it. Like I, from once in a while, like I eat pretty healthy, but like once in a while, maybe once a month, once every, you know, six weeks or something, I eat garbage and it's fantastic. And I feel a little crappy afterwards, but like, it's really good. And I get why people go, I'm not going to give up this flavor rush. That's amazing. It's like a drug for something that's, 
that's not like I think if they look if we have to it would be a huge change and it goes back to you know our family motto of do hard things is like yeah I know you want like you know whatever this chocolate caramel ice cream and stuff like that but why don't you just have some a bell pepper and hummus like you know what I mean like you can do that too <laughs> you just have to try and build that early because it's really sad to see obese children you know six seven year olds who are already obese because yeah. for them. I get that we say like we see someone who's like overweight or unhealthy. It's like, oh, that's a willpower issue. Not really. I mean, it is, yeah, but it's really different if that's all you know and that's all your body knows. You are addicted that food to is it. engineered. Yeah. It's yeah. engineered to be hyper palatable. I mean, you know, it takes work to overcome that. Right. It's not a choice. I mean, those food corporations want that food to be... And I, I don't blame look, I'm a capitalist and I am super critical of capitalism in certain areas. Our news, like I bought whatever this water bottle on Amazon. So I was like, okay, well, this is a, this seems like a good water bottle. It fits into my cup holder and everything like that. So I want this. So I buy it, but news, should you get the news you want or the news you need mm, the food? Mm-hmm. Should you get the food you want or the food you need? And when you it's bring really the free point. market ideas into those things that you need for your survival, for your, your living your best yes. life, that becomes an issue. Cause I don't blame Nabisco. Nabisco is doing Nabisco. You know, they're doing what they're supposed to do, which is raise shareholder value. And I understand that, but that's why we have regulations. We need regulations on this stuff and you're making people sick. You know, with Silicon Valley, when all these Silicon Valley, you know, tech billionaires don't let their kids have iPads, like what you, you should pay attention to that. Absolutely. And I think, I think you brought up something really interesting, which is we set our palates in childhood, Mm -hmm. but I think we set our palates, not just for food, but for ideas and for critical thinking, right? Like so much of our foundation for the way that we think, the way that we eat, the way that we move is cultivated. And that foundation gets laid in childhood. And I think that we have to really consider what we're setting these kids up for. And I know to bring it back to your work, your work with Heterodox Academy and really pushing them to include K through 12, because that's where critical thinking gets instilled. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they just dropped it. (laughs) Did they really? Yeah. Yeah. I went to this, um, the Heterodox Academy, which I love and I love John Height's work and I love the, everything about him. But we, I went to this, I was invited to go help out the, at the conference, just talking and stuff like that, run these communities. And I was there the first day, I got off the jet and went to the gym. I was working out and John Height walks in. I just walked out. I was like, John, oh man, come on. What are you doing? And he's like, I know, I know. Well, like, see, we've talked about it. And he was actually supportive of it. But John Tomasi from Brown took over as president. And they're just, I, they said it's a bandwidth issue, but I think it's a mistake. And a lot of people I was talking to thought it was a mistake too. I don't think they were just telling me that because they felt like I was in that camp. They com- were confiding in me like, you know, a 19 year old goes mm-hmm. off to college. And you think that they're all of a sudden going to have this open mind, just like you're saying, just like food. They're not going yeah. to, they're just not equipped it's too big. It's too rational. It's too, you know, crazy for them. They need to just like, they've been taught this certain way of thinking forever. Now to just say like, do this differently. They can't just like they've been eating this way forever. Now do it differently. They just, it's so much more difficult. So yeah, it's unfortunate, but I, maybe they'll, they'll revisit in the future, but right now they're just focusing on, on higher ed in college. So how do we do that? How do we instill critical thinking? I think I was talking about this interview with my husband. One time we, one thing we talked about, my husband is like the king of critical thinking. That's what he, he loves to problem solve. And we were talking about how do you teach that? Because I think we have this situation where 
we build a lot of school around test taking mm-hmm. and measuring knowledge at a specific point in time that might not serve at other points in time that is maybe going to go in one ear and out the other. When I think that there's this goal that if we can teach kids how to think critically, we can teach them how to solve problems in perpetuity and not just have this sort of limited little nugget of knowledge that just like you said, well, why do I need that? Yeah. It's that how to think versus what to think. Absolutely. And, you know, people say critical thinking, but they don't really, yeah, they don't really push it because it's, it is disruptive. So through Heterodox, one of the things that, that they did, which was great, was they gave me a grant and I, with a, a, a fellow educator of mine in Michigan named Zach Cresswell, we wrote a critical thinking across the disciplines curriculum for 11th and 12th grade. So it's actually just finished. We're, we're out there looking for pilot teachers now. So it's a whole process of understanding how the brain works. And then there's a lot of different just activities, moral dilemmas, things like that. You know, like the classic like trolley problem where like you shift the mm-hmm. lever, why? Just asking, having them, you know, question things. All the stuff that I do, like there's a civics unit where you have to pick, you know, like a, a quote from someone that you don't like that you agree with. You know, a media section where you have to pick news stories and tell it from a whole bunch of different perspectives. So you just walk them through the process. You kind of force them to look at different ways of thinking and then also understand why they think what they think. There isn't really a right or wrong answer to the trolley problem. There's just like you, all you have to do is you have to justify why you would do what you do and then go over all the logical fallacies and all that kind of stuff. So I think it's our attempt to do exactly what you're saying. But then when you go younger ages, I think it's, it's probably just more facilitating curiosity and asking questions like a lot of Socratic method stuff. You can apply even to to younger kids. And I think it comes kind of naturally just getting them to think about why they think what they think and, and things along those lines. I think that's great. And I think it's important just for this next generation to really cultivate that. And yeah. and it really hits home when you say that it's that curiosity can be disruptive, that the asking why is disruptive. But I think that we need to disrupt some of the models of education, some of this model of conversation where we're just yelling at each other and to create like we need disruption right now. Yeah. I mean, I don't really know how to do it, Kate. Like I uh, that's why that's why I started this social media account that I did in 2018 is like just to try and test it out here. And that's what it is. It's, it's like, I don't really know how to scale pushing critical thinking. So I'm going to try it out. And that's really what it is. And then the comment section, like people are going back and forth and like, then you read the comment section. You're like, Oh, okay. Okay. Well, that person's crazy. Like, cause a lot, there are people who will just give really bad arguments or make personal attacks. And you got to kind of work your way through all of that nonsense. And then at the end, you know, I have a lot of students who walk out of my class frustrated and say, Mr. Rouge, I was so certain before your class. And now I don't know what the hell's real. And I was like, I know that's not necessarily bad though. Like that's, that's, that's kind of my job is to get you to question things more and not be so certain with the world. To know less. Yeah. Yeah. And what you've built on social media, I know we're, we're getting close on time. What you've built with social media is so incredible. I love dropping in on the conversations that are happening in your comment section. And I think you've actually built a space where people are largely having conversations that are coming at it from different parts of the political spectrum. It seems that way. Yeah. Do you know what it, it sucks though? Okay. It's like, I'm shot. I don't know if I still am, but I was shadow banned for a while talking about COVID stuff. And like at any point, Instagram could just, it's gone. 
everything. And like, you can scroll through my account. I mean, years of like, there's good stuff from like three years ago. I think uh, like, I'm really proud of it. Like I can make a whole course on it. And like, that's why part of why I'm going part-time this year, I'm just teaching civics and government and three classes basically. And then I'm going to lean into doing more stuff because it is concerning. I put a lot of effort into this Instagram. I think it's a good model for something that we can do. It's good. I mean, it's good for, it's, how is it bad for society? It's not, you know, I'm just asking questions and putting things out there to get you to think it's not bad, but Instagram could shut me down at any moment. That's so that's, so I put all of that power in the hands of some tech company. That's I obviously ideologically driven. Absolutely. So yeah, I'm, so I'm going to be leaning into other channels because I think it's just, it's this, the wise thing to do because I can't put all my eggs in this one basket and then have it all go away. No, I I agree completely. And I think that it's a difficult place to be in where you don't even own in this sense, your own content that you are at the, the whims of big tech. And that's not where anybody wants to be, but I'm so appreciative of what you've built there. And I'm curious to see what you'll build beyond that. I think, you know, as my husband and I talk about having children and what would we do for school? And this has become a really big conversation. I mean, not only are we out in the sticks, like we're pretty far away, but there are questions about what education looks like now and what we want for our kids. And are we equipped to deal with that? Like if we went the homeschool route, are we equipped to, to do this? And so I think that the work that you're doing to look at this, just to even ask questions is probably some of the most important work that we can be doing and to have conversations, to bridge those gaps, to find some idea and viewpoint diversity. Hopefully I know that you have troubles getting some of the more left side of things, which I I think is, is disappointing. And I, I found that in general, you know, when we went to the minds event, it was so Oh, you're on the 25th. You went to that? Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. I wanted to go, but it was too close to, it's awesome. Because we were able to just drive down and then drive home that night, but it didn't draw a diverse crowd. And I think that was, I want to see us all coming together and to see different people in the crowd. And the crowd was very right. Oh. And so that was something, and as somebody who has had this incredible gift of getting to work in agriculture. Food is one place where there is still a lot of different people coming together to have a conversation. Yeah. Like farmers could be like, you know, like, yeah, like middle America kind of like, you know, John Deere hat conservatives, or they could be kind of like granola, you know, like yep. Birkenstock wearing people. Yeah. That, that's, that's, uh, yeah, that's rad. Yeah, you you yeah. pinpointed it. Yeah. And that's the, but I think that's been a really beautiful gift. And so I want to figure out how we get more of that in different spaces, not just within the food conversation, oh, but that's very cool. within all of these tightly held beliefs, whether it's guns or abortion or all the things that are coming up right yeah. now in culture. Yeah, for sure. Well, tell us where can people find you? Yeah. So as you said, Instagram is probably my, that's like the social media platform that I use the most. Uh, I, the reason I steered away from Twitter is I want, I want to be like a real person. I think that matters. I think making videos, mm-hmm. so you, you see me and, and you, well, I do stories just about every day. So you see like me talking, I don't show like too many details. I don't give like my address or anything, but you see like me being like a, yeah. a, a normal, a, I don't know, normal, but like a, a regular person or a real person, I should say. That's just my name. Uh, Will W I L L R E U S C H. And then, I mean, I have a, 
a, a website that it's kind of bare bones. Now it's just, again, my name, it's like williamrouge.com or something, but I think we'll that's, have links. yeah, I think that's where I'm going to start putting, I'm going to start uploading stuff on YouTube as well. It's just all my name. It's at least it's like a, it's a fairly unique name. There's not a whole lot. I think like a producer for like Disney movies or something has my name, but like, <laughs> it's not like, like John Matthews or something like that. So it's, it's fairly unique. So you can just find me through Google and, and things like that. But I'm going to be leaning into doing more stuff. I, I really think that it's my aim. My professional aim would be to scale good education because it's a really tricky thing to solve. Kate. Like if you can make an app, yeah. you can make an app that makes you look fat and bald and it's a dollar and you could sell a million of them and you make a million dollars. But if you are a great nurse, a great fireman, a great teacher too, is like, it's like person. It's like a caregiver. Like you, it's hard to scale because so much of what I do is like is a personal connection, and that's what I try yeah. to do with Instagram. I'm a way better teacher to my class than I am on Instagram because I can connect with like a person and I know the person and I know like their family and what their struggles are. That's really difficult to scale, but the goal is to scale good education. So that's like my, my long-term goal. That's what I'm going to be leaning into in the next couple of years and, and see where it goes. And I'll probably need help from tech people and, and things like that, but I don't really know how to do it. And I'm going to try and figure that out. So yeah, I mean, I think that's all supports wonderfully. Embraced. Really important question. Yeah. And as we think about how we would put kids in school, I think there are a lot of people that are thinking about how can we scale good education yeah. and, and you're really leading the charge. And I appreciate that. Thank you. I, ask everybody on this podcast the same question. I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on this. What does it mean for you to lay the groundwork? And sometimes this is just in the sense of like our own families, but sometimes it's for generations in advance, right? For our children's grandchildren. So what does it mean for you to lay the groundwork? Oh, I love that. So when we say scale good education, what even is a good teacher? It's very hard to quantify because I'm in this for the long game. I'm laying the groundwork. Okay. It's nice to have a 16 year old say, Mr. Ish, you're my favorite teacher. It's nice. Thank you. Truly. Thank you. And come see me when you're 40 and come up and say like, <laughs> I'm living an awesome life full of meaning. I love my job. Here's my family. It's all good. I've had these struggles, but I got through them because of blah, 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 blah. Even if I had very little or nothing to do with it, honestly, that is the game that I'm in. It's all about laying groundwork. It's all about planting seeds that of a tree that I'm not going to be sitting under. Okay. That's the whole thing about education. I think it's not about, about quantifying things. Now it's like, you're in this to help people to build a good, meaningful life for themselves when they're, they're old, when they're to, to, to go make a good life for themselves. And it's really hard to quantify that because we do it through test scores and stuff, which aren't, don't show you that at all. So that's what it means. And that's, that's what I, that's the way I've always viewed education. And that's really, it's always about long-term. It's not about short-term gain. It's about long-term thinking uh, when it comes to all the stuff that I'm doing. I love that. And I think, you know, agriculture, I feel the same way. It's mm, about long-term yeah. thinking. It's about long-term thinking about how to build a healthy ecosystem. And that's not, that's not for tomorrow or next year. And so I think that the more we can adopt that long-term thinking lens, I think that really changes, changes everything. Yeah. I love it. I love the idea of sustainable farming and stuff. So yeah, I'll be yeah. following. Well. Thank you so much. I mean, I, I really mean it when I say that you have changed the way that my husband and I think about things and we're just so grateful for your work and just want you to keep on keeping on and, and building more and even better things. All right. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah I will. Thank you. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Groundwork Podcast. If what you heard today resonated with you, may I ask that you share it with your friends or leave us a review? This helps others find Groundwork. If you're looking for more, you can find us at GroundworkCollective.com and at Groundwork Collective on Instagram. I would like to give a very special thank you to China and Seth Kent of the band All Right, All Right for clips from the beautiful song Over the Edge from their album, The Crucible. You can find them at All Right, All Right on Instagram and wherever you listen to music. <laughs>